everyone, and welcome to Everyday Linux, episode 46, Linux in the Post-PC World, recorded April 1st, 2012, and brought to you by Elements OP Productions, elementsop.com. Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of Everyday Linux. This week, I have um, two out of three of our uh, co-hosts with us this week. A quorum. Um, Yay. We do have a quorum, in fact. <laughs> Aaron, the former fat guy slash noob in residence, uh, his mama is visiting. And when a Texas boy's mama's visits, uh, you do you don't do nothing else. You don't do any podcasting. He's uh, being a tour guide and showing her around the Atlanta area, and I hope they're having a good time. But we do have with us our uh, uh, gooey kid, Mr. Seth Anderson. Hey, Seth. Hey, everybody. And also the command line godfather, Mr. Chris Neves. What's up, Chris? Oh, I'm doing good tonight. How are you doing, guys? Good, good, good. Pretty good. Anything interesting going on this weekend for you guys? Spring cleaning time. Yeah. Not really for me. <laughs> I lead a boring life. <laughs> we spent most of the Saturday getting parts and pieces and stuff ready for getting the yard back up from the winter hibernation kind of thing that we had this year. I gave up caring about my lawn. I pay a Mexican to mow it. That's not racism. He's literally a Mexican, uh, but that's about that's about it. <laughs> we we mow it and we don't do anything else. When we first moved in, twelve or thirteen years ago, it was a big deal. We were a young couple, no kids. We had time and money to invest in that. Now it's a parking lot for Fisher Price toys, so we don't really care anymore. <laughs> Ain't that the truth, though? Yeah. Keep it low enough to keep the snakes out. <laughs> that's right. Oh. This week uh, is uh, today, April 1st, is a, is a special day uh, in two ways. Uh, first off, it is the, uh, the birthday of Element OP Productions. The very first show, the Taiwan Tech, the first release date was April 1st of 2010. We are wow. two years old today. And it's also my birthday. So uh, I, am, I am considerably older than two today. <laughs> But, uh, oh, and I forgot to turn my phone off. Sorry about that. What song was that? It sounds familiar. That was the, uh, uh, Linus and Lucy from Charlie Brown. Okay. Charlie Brown. So let me go and mute that thing right now. Cause now I have to pay royalties <laughs> to Charlie Brown. No. That was my mom calling, probably, hopefully, to wish me a happy birthday. But uh, we do have another call, and uh, this is uh, Aaron put me on the spot. He called and left a voicemail, and I always say uh, that if you call and leave a voicemail, I will play it on the show. Uh, but he called and did something that is going to probably get me in trouble with the copyright police. But uh, I'm going to do it anyway. So here's, well, here's our listener voicemail for this week. You don't have to play the whole thing, though, do you? Well, I do. I mean, I, okay. I said I would. So uh, I could edit it down. I could, but I'm not going to. Here we go. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Mark. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Mark. This is for the Everyday Linux podcast. This is a voicemail for it. And per your own declaration, you must play it on the air. Happy birthday. What does that mean? 
So there you go. Uh, that was uh, his son, Nathaniel, wishing me a happy birthday. And I'm going to choose to say that rather than just me, he was wishing the entire Element OP network a happy birthday. Oh Yeah. I just wonder how he got Nathaniel to stay still long enough to do that. <laughs> well, he was probably dancing while he sang. Technically, okay. this is not Element OP. Element OP didn't exist until uh, like a year and a half later, but I'm still going with that because it's our first podcast. Anyway, into the uh, the news of the week this week. Da, da, da. Uh, this one, uh, I believe uh, Seth put this in here. Old Geeks, or was that Chris? I, no, Chris. Okay. Tell me what this is about, Chris. Put that one in. Uh, it was just a funny little um, picture I found. Uh, it, we'll have to bring it up and talk about it because it's one of those things. I'm waiting for the page to refresh so I get the picture so I can talk about it because I didn't have it up. Oh, yeah, I know. But uh, <laughs> ah, come on. My page just froze. It's it's a simple comic. Two guys standing at each other, uh, standing and talking to each other. It says, isn't that great? Since I've left the forty far uh, left the forty far behind, even my Palm Pilot has a retina display. Yep. So the idea being that uh, the resolution is so small that it can't be seen with the naked eye, and as you get older, bigger and bigger things become retina displays. That's funny. <laughs> I thought that was a good one. Yeah. See, I, I'm in one of those situations where a few years ago I paid a doctor with a fancy machine a whole lot of money to to, to shine a laser into my eye so that I don't need glasses anymore. And then um, ooh, I got about two years out of that before I started having to to put things farther and farther away from me. And uh, you know, there's just nothing you can do about that that whole middle age sight thing. But eventually, my arm's going to get too short, and I'm going to have to put on other types of glasses. <laughs> yep. So, uh, Chris, you got a lot for us this week. Uh, you're, you're, I did. You're considering different types of virtualization. We are. We're actually making the jump into the virtualizing sphere. Um, we, uh, for a change, our district actually paid for us to go to a conference on virtualizing, and they were a big guy. They were big on talking about VMware is ESXi. Um, and they showed us a whole bunch of cool things that via, that VMware can do for you. And I didn't know this, but they have released their ESXi um, intro thing as free. Right. So as long as you don't want any of the extra cool bells and whistles, you can virtualize for nothing using VMware. Yeah, I've been using VMware Server, which sits on top of an OS. So I'm running it on top of Linux. And uh, and that that does well enough for our needs. We're not a huge data center, but the ESXi has its own really thin OS that it sits on top of. It's it becomes a, a true hypervisor. And yeah, and as long as you don't want the vMotion, that's what they charge the most for. Of course, that's what everybody wants: the ability to dynamically move virtual machines from one place to another. Everything's free, but that, and that costs you a a, a small fortune. Right, but uh, when it comes to compare, I. We haven't started the comparison chart yet for VMware versus Proxmox, which is another one. It's a Linux-based uh, hypervisor. Um, and I'm going to sit down and do that comparison chart here before the end of the year or end of the school year to see which one will win out. But right now, my boss is leaning on VMware because we have that corporate sponsor. So it would be interesting to see how it all works out. And we already have the servers coming. So... That's going to be kind of an interesting thing to play with. 
The last servers you will ever buy because everything else from this point on will be virtual. That's the idea, at least. Yeah. And these servers were actually we're not actually buying these servers. Um, Montana has a has a little thing in place where anything that comes out of the state's desks, server closets, or whatever, they go into a big um, repository of parts. And if you spend the money to drive up there, you can take whatever you want home for nothing. That's cool. So these servers that we're getting, they're ginormous monster cool. IBM. Yeah, it's really cool. It's saving a lot of money too for us as a state as a school. Um, but we're getting these ginormous monster servers that who knows what the state was using them for. Um, there, when we checked them out, they were like fifty thousand new, and we're getting them for the cost of gasoline <laughs> to drive up somewhere and get them. So only forty thousand. <laughs> Maybe depending on which how big the rig is that we go up there with, but uh. It'll be interesting to see how these work because I've I've been try I've been pushing to go virtualized for the simple reason that we have aging machines that need to go away for servers. So it's going to be fun. I have a feeling at least. Well, Chris, if you, if your school people or anything like some of the ones I've worked for, if you don't have some product in there by Microsoft, they're probably going to not like your comparison chart. I just found out that Microsoft. I know that there's like Hyper-V as part of the 2008 server, but you can get just a Hyper-V server that is just like a very minimal OS and it just like boots up the virtualization stuff. Uh, but if you want just show for comparison to put a third thing in there, you might try that. I've, I'd be curious to see how well it would stack up. Well, it could be something I could throw on the mix. I, but the problem is, is both VMware and Proxbox are both free. What's the Microsoft cost for their virtualizing Hyper-V server? It says it's free. So, again, you're not getting the whole 2008 server where Hyper-V is, is a, a role, but it's just the Hyper-V server 2008. So right. You'll have to send me a link for that, and I'll, I'll put it in my comparison chart. And don't rule out VirtualBox. Yeah, it's... Uh Depending on your needs, again, it can't do that fancy um, uh, dynamic allocation stuff, but uh, it may be all you need, depending on, on what you want to do. Um. <clears throat> well, in my main box itself as well. Um, so it'll be interesting. VirtualBox is nice, but it doesn't do... Um, now I forgot what I was going to say about it. Well, they do have, there's the free virtual box, but they do have a paid alternative, which is not terribly expensive and, and fills in a lot of those missing pieces oh. that the free one doesn't have. Okay. That might be why I haven't, I haven't thought virtual box because I don't, I didn't know about the paid version. Yeah. I, it's, it's, um, obviously it's more expensive than VMware ESXi, which is totally free, but I think it's, uh, on the order of like a couple hundred bucks a core uh, or something like that. It's, it's not expensive when you consider that it's like a one-time purchase thing. It's not a, right. uh, an annual license. Um, okay. Virtualization. That's all. That's uh, uh, big on the geeks heart these days. And then yeah. a couple other things that we've talked about before, both open filer and, and free NAS and, and your friend Unraid. What's, what's going on there, Chris? Well, Unraid, I was, on the heels of this virtualizing thing, um, I found out that Unraid doesn't have the the ability to do iSCSI. 
So I can't map to it the way that VMware wants to be mapped on network storage. And what these guys were toting on were open filer. But I noticed that FreeNAS also has an iSCSI connector as well. So now the question is, is which one will I have to give up my own RAID box for? Yeah. I'm, I'm having an issue with iSCSI. Um, and I, I don't know where to pin it down. It's, it's a virtual machine running Ubuntu connecting to a Drobo. So there's, there's lots of possibilities in there, but somewhere in the line, the iSCSI performance is terrible. Um, backups that on a hardware, hardware machine took overnight are now taking seven and eight days. Wow. Uh, iSCSI. And, and Drobo is supposed to be super high performance, right? And so maybe there's, there's something going on with the switch. Maybe there's something in VM. I don't know what it is, but, um, that's my only experience so far with iSCSI and it's not been positive. See, that's the first negative I've heard about iSCSI. Uh, not counting the guys that were showing us the VMware stuff because all their stuff was through iSCSI. Um, they actually set up a small little works work network inside this, at this, uh, school location. And they had their router server and everything right there in the building, right there in the room that you could look at it. And they were going through a one gigabit switch and everything was perfect, pretty much working as if they were, you know, native drives. So that's, yeah. yeah. I'm sure it's something that my, my thinking at this point is that it's uh, something in the virtual machine driver in VMware server. Um, But I don't know that. I don't know what it is, but the performance has not been what I expected and it's not one of those things I can really break down. Uh, I mean, it's working poorly, but it's working. So I kind of need mm-hmm. to leave it until summer, and then I'll break it down and, and go from there. So I, I, what I may have be, be finding is that some things just aren't appropriate for virtual machines. And uh, I know that yeah. anything that does a lot of heavy-duty writing to the hard drive isn't. But this isn't writing to the hard drive, right? It's, it's, it's going out to the iSCSI drive. So I thought I'd be able to get away with it. But maybe I can't. Maybe I'm going to have to go back and build a physical box. Or maybe it's Ubuntu's implementation of iSCSI. I, I don't. I don't know. There's a lot of variables. Maybe when I get it figured out, we'll uh, we'll uh, look at it more deeply in a show. Sounds cool. And this next one is not tech related, but it uh, applies to techs. Uh, it's one it I saw. It applies to everybody. Yeah. In my opinion, it applies to everybody. Did you guys both watch this? Yeah, I had seen yes. it. I had seen it before you put it in the in the link. It's a uh, a uh, an ignite talk that's going um, viral, and it's called "Go the F Home," and it's it's how to have uh, work a healthy balance in your work and your personal life, and the yep. uh, it's five minutes of her basically saying "Go the F Home." So yep. uh, check it out. Uh, there's the link will be in the show notes. And I'll throw it here in the chat room for anybody who wants to look at it right now. It's it's and, funny and and poignant. Very, and very you much. do need, I would suggest watching it as opposed to just letting it play in the background because you see like her whatever PowerPoint or slide rocket whatever uh, graphical thing she's using show up in the background and they're really good. So you miss something if you're only going to listen to it. Take five minutes, or like me at my house, take fifteen minutes for it to cash <laughs> and watch it. So, yeah, I was when I, I watched it, and I was at work when I watched it with headphones on. Thank goodness, because the F bomb came in. But uh, I just about fell out of my chair when I started laughing, especially when she said, "If you don't have two things outside of work, you don't have a life. Go get one." Yes. 
And, and you know, it's interesting things to do in life besides work, family, friends, Quiznos. <laughs> I don't know why open Quiznos source. gets on that list. Origami, beer, uh, but an open source initiative. Absolutely, and that was what I I thought would per- work perfect for us. <laughs> and you know, she even talks about you can leave your job and go to a second job. So uh, you know, maybe your life is work. So just don't do it all at one place. Unless you're getting paid by the hour with lots of overtime pay. There you go. Well, there, you know, I, I don't know if companies are still doing it, but uh, certainly in the nineties and, or, and in the, the, around the turn of the century, how weird is it to say that, uh, companies were working hard to build a culture in which employees did not go home. You know, Microsoft famously had the, the free soda and pizza, uh, 24 hours and Google has their super uber gourmet cafeteria, uh, that you can go to and they, and they try to create an environment and they hire people, young people just out of college who aren't married. And then they, they, they work to create an environment where your work is your life so that they get uh, 70, 80, a hundred hours out of their employees on a regular basis, but they try to make it an enjoyable experience. But, yep. uh, you know, I, I tend to agree. Uh, I, for me, it was having kids. I used to be one of those guys who was at, at work, 70, 80 hours a week consistently. And then I had kids and I had a reason to go home. Not yep. that sounds bad for my wife. It's not that my wife wasn't reason enough to go home, but it was like she had her own job and we were both doing our own things. And when we came together, it was good. But uh, once we had a kid, it was like, I, I want to go home and I want to be with my kids. So that, yep. uh, that changed me. Yeah, that was the, that was the, the turning point for me when my second child was born. So now uh, I only work 60 hours a week. Yeah. <laughs> And how much do you do of your phone too? <laughs> yeah. Or or at home. Yeah. yeah. That's I don't work any less. I just changed my location. I come home and pull out the laptop and I keep working at home. Yeah, that's why I was wondering how many of us are guilty of not going home. So something to think yeah. about, especially if that video makes you laugh that hard that you really think, Oh my goodness, that's so funny because it's so true. Maybe you need to rethink how you have your priorities set up. And of course, this will all be old news by the time this airs on Wednesday. But uh, today is April first, and Google is going all out with their April Fools thing. It's like that; like they spend all their twenty percent time now finding April Fools jokes uh, and planning those all year long. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> this one's some pretty good ones, though. Yeah, yeah, I like this one. Um, if you haven't done it, um, hopefully they'll leave it up for a while. But they put Google Quests on the maps. You can like have Street View, or you can have satellite, or you can have Quest. You know, think Zelda. Yeah, eight-bit maps. Uh, yep. Yeah, it's Google Maps now in eight-bit glory, and it it was great. You know, I I pulled up where I lived, and I switched to um, Quest just to see. You know, and the little trail and the little blocks of trees and stuff. It was actually pretty good. And they so, say uh, that I thought uh, it was pretty cool. They say that there's actually monsters and and. Things like I never encountered one when I was playing with it, but uh, apparently they have put some things on the map where you actually have to, like, you know, uh, uh, a monster has approached, what do you want to do? And, and you type in draw sword or something like that. Probably. Oh, I didn't like get that. I, I like intro videos for it personally. I thought that was really good. I, Chris, you didn't, you sounded like a bad. 80s cell phone connection. We didn't hear any of that. Oh, that's horrible. What I said was that when I was playing with it, I didn't get any of that, but uh, I did thought it was pretty funny when 
the intro video for that came out. Yeah. That's the one that made me laugh the hardest. The little, and then he blow the bug fixing by blowing in the cartridge. Right. Yeah. That you can actually, they, the, you can actually get it on an NES cartridge theoretically. Uh, what, what my favorite one was, uh, a YouTube now available on DVD. You can order YouTube, uh, and they'll send it to your house on on a series of DVDs. Oh, how big would that stack <laughs> yeah. of DVDs be? Oh my gosh, can you imagine? Well, the last statistic I heard is that sixty hours of video is uploaded every minute. So uh, that's uh, sixty hours would be what uh, ten DVDs or so. It's a uh, lot. Yeah. So yeah, they'd be bringing you a dump truck every day full of DVDs. <laughs> the poor environment <laughs> yeah. yeah imagine what the shipping and handling cost on that would be yeah dvds are free with 595 shipping so it'll be worse than those aol dvds we used to get or cds gosh <laughs> right i had a friend who uh actually wallpapered her wall with those they were she got so many of them in the mail that's kind oh. of a cool idea yeah she did uh i think it was the baby's nursery she did the whole room in in AOL CDs, well, you could just turn them over and have a cheap mirror. So, well, that yeah, they were they were shiny side out. Okay. Uh, and then one more from Chris. Um, you you're experiencing uh, experimenting with Smoothwall. Is that why you sound so awesome tonight? It might be. Um, the last time I played with Smoothwall, it, it was impressive, and I was really liking it. But I locked the internet out of my house, so. <laughs> I don't know if that's from my inexperience with Smoothwall or if it was, yeah, probably my inexperience with Smoothwall. But uh, I'm really impressed with the way the Smoothwall interface works. And so I'm, I'm playing with it again to see if uh, I can get my head around it. But I this time I did not lock up the, the Internet so bad that I couldn't browse the web or get on Steam or <laughs> stream from Pandora. Um, we All we got was email the last time I played a smooth wall. So I think I'm doing better this time. See, the first time I experimented with smooth wall was at work and I fired up the box, which automatically had DHCP server turned on and immediately started, started handing out hundreds of bogus DHCP uh, addresses with a router, which was a box that not connected to anything. And uh, that was, that was badness. The whole, the whole thing just sort of crashed. Um, and, and it went downhill from there. Yeah. So I, and, and still to this day, that, that experimental laptop I had, um, I have put it to use uh, with other things, but still, if you look in the DHCP list, there's hundreds and hundreds of, of, uh, machines that got their lease that day. Um, it's like, you know, I kind of keep it around for, uh, to remind me, Hey, stupid, don't ever do that again. Uh, but, you know, and then <laughs> how do you, the easiest way to tell people to get their lease back is to reboot. So I spent all day saying, yeah, there, that was, uh, there was an internet glitch. Um, just, just reboot and, uh, and it'll be fine. <laughs> Blame the internet for your mistakes. Ah, I like that. Yeah. Sounds like what I do. Well, that's entirely true. It was an internet glitch. I glitched and took away their internet. <laughs> well, you are part of the internet. That's so true. you're really not lying. You just didn't say which part. Back in the, the years ago, I used to do little speeches about what is the internet, you know, back in the education uh, when people needed to know that. 
and I used to take umbrage with the phrase on the internet. And I would lay an ethernet cable down on the floor and stand on it and say, now I'm on the internet. Your computer is not on the internet. You're on the web. You're connected to the internet. So, uh, that doesn't have anything to do with anything, but I hope that visual, uh, stuck with people. Okay. Wow. Cool. That was uh, that was a big warm up section, 24 minutes in, and we just now hitting the Linux news, but that's okay. Cause the actual topic this tonight is a fairly short discussion. And hopefully this is uh, useful. Uh, Ubuntu 12.04 precise pangolin. What is a pangolin? Um, the beta two is released. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Chris, I love his comment. Do we really care about betas anymore? Honestly, do we? Um, when was the last time any of us actually installed a beta to test it? I mean, unless you're on the beta test team, do you really do that anymore? Yeah, well, I, I don't do it anymore because the, the one time I did it was a nightmare that required a nuke and pave to use Chris's term to get back. By the way, a pangolin is a scaly anteater, also known as a trangling. So there you go. Now you know what I, um, what did I say? Persistent pangolin? Precise Precise. pangolin. Oh, so when they get all the way around and they're going to have to start finding double letters, A, A, B, B, C, C, that's going to be even harder. Yeah, that's going to be nuts. (laughs) Yeah, because it's not nuts already. Yeah. So so anyway, the the beta was released uh, twelve point oh four. G Duncan twenty uh, in the chat room says that uh, Ubuntu twelve oh four crashes more on his machine than than Windows, but it's still a month away. So it's yeah. you expect when you load up a beta OS, you have to expect it to crash. I mean, if you don't expect it to crash, you're the one who's being crazy there. Um, right. Because beta is beta, um, and I don't. I don't download and now it's a, uh, it's going to be, this is one of their L, uh, long-term releases, isn't it? I think so. Yep. Yeah. L- yeah. It's an LTA. So, uh, I'm going to, uh, wait, they, you know, come out, it'll come out officially in probably around the end of April, sometime in April. Yeah. Um, so we've got you know, about a month or, or 20 plus days or so. Uh, I generally wait until June or July before I put those in there because they're, they're still aggressively bug fixing for a while, but I do always recommend the LTS, the long-term support versions. So this will be the one I'll be moving to, uh, but just not right now. Well, and you know, it's the same thing in the windows world. The first release of the OS is just the public beta. It's not a service pack comes out, that it's decent. Right. Yeah. Even Vista was pretty good after the first service pack. I get skewered when I say that because most people didn't hang around that long. (laughs) <laughs> well, most people installed Vista on machines that really didn't run XP well. Exactly. You know. Yeah. When I ran Vista on my home computer, and it ran better with Vista than after I upgraded it to seven, because you know quad core six gigs of RAM, and that ran Vista very very well. So yeah, right now in the in the pod pod, I have uh, all three major Windows versions. I've got seven XP and Vista all running side by side right now on three different laptops. So uh, you can't accuse me of being uh, uh, partial to any of them. <laughs> the only one I'm ever partial to right now is, you know, out of all the windows that I've played with, I like seven. It's the only yeah. one I can actually say I like. I do like the snipping tool. I went to do a print screen and all of that. It didn't work the other day. And I'm like, what in the world? And so, you know, I had to, I had to Google how to do it and i was like snipping tool what's that and i pulled it up and i went 
this is really cool. Yeah. So, uh, it's a I was impressed. It's been in every cool. release. Right. And then also this week, uh, this is a big, big news. Uh, it, it took them a long time to get there, but Red Hat is now, um, uh, reached over a billion dollars in profit. Um, and they're like the first really open source company to do that. So it's kind of a big milestone, not only for Red Hat, um, but also for the open source community because, you know, they're big on the support is where they get their money from and not the actual software. So uh, it's kind of a, you know, it's a win-win for open source. You know, we're getting our respect and cred on the street. <laughs> and let me backtrack a little there. I, I use the word profit. The article uses the word revenues. There's a big difference yeah. between revenues and profit. Uh, yeah. Red Hat uh, hit over a billion dollars in revenue. Um, right. And that's a big deal. I mean, Apple has billions and billions and billions, but uh, they're selling hardware and software, and really all Red Hat is selling is support and manuals. So right. to reach a billion dollars, that's a pretty big deal. Yep. Right. It just goes to show you that Red Hat knows how to make money. Right. So, uh, yeah, I just I thought it was cool because it's just, you know, open source, good news, good win for the Linux open source community. So. And I'll have to confess, they're not getting a penny of that from me. I've never paid Red Hat a dime. I, I like many um, Linux users, am a total cheapskate and will go all open source, all free uh, whenever possible. But, uh, you know, there are enough people out there that, that uh, you know, Red Hat has enough um, um, name recognition now that people <laughs> are making money. people. Well, and, you know, and that's part of that is mindset because you're the I'm going to fix it if it breaks guy. Exactly. I used to work for a guy and he was like, you better have someone you can call. So he would have been the, you know, I'm paying somebody for support. So he would have been a Red Hat guy. Um, so, you know, different strokes for different folks. Okay. Now this next story, this is, this is porting taken to his extreme. Um <laughs> Linux running on an 8-bit chip. And not a stripped-down kind of... This is... Um, he ran Ubuntu uh, on an 8-bit microcontroller. He, he kind of went through the process of what he did. And again, it's not... It took it two hours to boot to a bash prompt. And four, <laughs> and four more hours to boot up the entire Ubuntu. And then if you start X after that, it takes even longer. It's not so much the time. It was that a modern distribution that you would use today is running on an 8-bit microcontroller. You know, I mean, Windows 2000, I don't think, would run on an 8-bit microcontroller. But uh, Can you imagine it, the swapping that has to go on there? Not just memory swapping, but, the, but everything. Because, you know, it's calculating 32-bit numbers with an 8-bit chip. So there's all right. sorts of uh, storing this over here and, and coming back to it for later. So yeah, what was it? Uh, seven? I, I wasn't adding all that up, but something like ten hours to get to X eleven. <laughs> something like that. And you know, and he said he actually used it to format an SD card. So <laughs> it was, you know, again, it's not that it's not that. Hey, this is my everyday computer. This is specifically for the you know the gray the gray beards and bandana guys out there. You know, <laughs> just. Uh, I just thought it was a cool story, so uh, I wanted to share. That is a good story. And just to, to backtrack for a second, do you guys have an idea how much it costs for a desktop license of Red Hat? I just looked it up, so I thought I'd bring it up. I think it's pretty much the same as a Windows license, isn't it? 
No, it's cheaper. Okay. For a desktop, it's a, for a single desktop. Now, this would be like for your house. It's $49 for a year. Now, that's a, you have to pay that every year? Well, for just for the support. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so yeah, if you wanted support for every year, yeah, it'd be $49 every year. But, I mean, that's that's not too bad. And then if you wanted a a workstation with uh for like an you know enterprise class, enterprise it would be one hundred and eighty dollars a year. So that's actually like more expensive than Windows because you expect to get a couple years out of Windows. Yeah, but Windows comes with zero support. Micro- yep. there, there is no support line at Microsoft. I mean, there's there's a help desk, but that doesn't actually count as a support line. Once that gets you booting, they're pretty much done with you. Well, at, if you get the non-OEM, like if you buy just the box, you get, I think, like two calls or something, free calls to Microsoft. So you get some support, not every day for a year that you would get with uh, Red Hat. But yeah, G Junk in the chat room says, does Red Hat, Hat uh, update after the year? And Red Hat is very slow to update. We just did a story last week about how they're extending their support out to a full decade. Yeah for their EL, uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Uh, I don't know about their desktop. I don't know how that works. Uh, I would have to investigate a little bit deeper to find out for sure for you, Duncan. But, you know, that's even if it even if it doesn't, though, with how slow Red Hat updates, by the time you can figure out how to change out the Red Hat repositories for the Fedora repositories, um, you probably won't lose very much updating anyway. And this next one, Iceland has the hots for FOSS. I love that headline. Um, I, I copied that straight from uh, the website I found. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, Iceland went broke in the uh, last uh, world crash. And so in a way to save money, they're planning to more openly and regretfully move to adopt it, to adopt open source, not only education, but hospitals, governments, and everything. Yeah, they're moving their... Their schools are already starting to move to Moodle. They're going to be using Linux in the server room and on the desktop. And, and you know, when people ask about the future of Linux, and that's what we're going to talk about here in a little bit, um, it al- almost always comes down to um, the economics are what's going to move people to Linux. It's not going to be, it's not going to be freedom. It's not going to be uh, Richard Stallman that's going to bring people to Linux. It's not going to be... Um, some notion of the fact that you can open it up and hack the code. No, you know, other than a small half a percentage of geeks, nobody really cares about that. It's going to be cost. And as long as people can afford the others, they will. And that's what we see with Apple. People who can afford Apple love their Apple products and they should, they're good products. But uh, those who can't afford them go with windows. And when it gets to the point where you can't even afford Windows, and that's what Shuttleworth was all about with the with the whole Ubuntu thing was you know South Africa can't afford Windows, so he created Ubuntu, spending his own money to do it. So it's always going to be economics to drive people. Yeah, I mean that's true. You know, necessity being the mother of invention and all of that. So, but the cool thing about it is, once you make that choice for whatever the reason, you get there and you find, hey, I'm not missing anything. I have a full-on right. system here that has everything I need. And that's why it's important that even though we're, you know, at 2% market share or whatever, it's important that developers keep struggle, uh, chugging along and, and guys like us, the, the advocates, uh, keep advocating because as more and more people come to that realization, they're going to find that I have everything I need. And so we need to make sure that that's true as, as long as possible, that, that when people make that change, they have everything they need. 
Yeah, that's one of the things that I'm going to be trying to push some open source stuff in my school districts because we're moving away, f we're moving into the Google Docs realm. So our Active Directory logins aren't going to be as important anymore. So if that's the case, if we can run, say, our library labs as open source software, you know, like Linux or Unix or something along those lines, and save us, you know, 20 seats on our license cost, why not? Definitely. Not only that, but you can repurpose your older hardware. Yep. You know, you don't have to keep the latest and greatest. The stuff that, well, you know, this really doesn't run Windows so well. Let me take these 40 machines, and between these 40 machines, I'll be able to keep a lab of 15 to 20 computers up at all times. Um, whereas that, That's exactly, Seth, where my school is right now. We've got a stack of about 100 machines that aren't reliable. And out of that 100 machines, we're trying to keep one lab of 25 going. And, uh, and and that's just the, the the financial state we're in right now, and it's a it's a lot of work, it's a lot of labor, uh, but we you know we keep a stack running, and when one fails, we just swap it in, and uh, you know the in terms of end user customer service, they're never down for more than you know maybe an hour at the most, usually right. less than that, and so yeah, that's uh, that's a sad state of education right now, public education anyway. That's the direction we're going, but uh, it does work. Yeah, and you know, and it's exactly what you said. Linux has parity with Apple and with Microsoft. You know, there's some things it does better, and there's some things it doesn't do as well. And when you get past the flame wars from whatever side, you know, if the closed source people need to understand, hey, there's some things that the Linux software is better at, better suited for, and the Linux fanboys just realize that OpenOffice and LibreOffice are great, but they're not as pretty as Microsoft Office. Right. That it's the killer Office app, you know. So, um, by the way, I again, just want to pause for a moment to point out Seth's shirt. He was wearing a shirt that says, "I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the sound of how awesome I am." <laughs> yes, I uh, I pulled it out of the closet. I hadn't worn it in a while, and you know I've been losing some weight, and I put it on, and it's not like stretched in where the words are all. <laughs> it's actually it actually almost fits now. So. Actually, almost fits. That's what I look for in clothing. Yeah. Okay, and then the last one, um, I'm, you're just going to have to explain this to me. Whoever put that in there, go. Okay, uh, MMO stands for Massive Multiplayer Online Game. You know, like World of Warcraft. Right. Uh, EverQuest was like the first major popular one. Uh, there is an open source one out called, uh, let me go back to that. It's called uh, Browser Quest. And the graphics on by it... By Mozilla. Yeah, by Mozilla. The graphics on it aren't great, so, you know, don't expect a World of Warcraft experience. I was thinking it's probably equivalent to, like, maybe on N64. But the thing about it, it was put together with um, uh, HTML5, JavaScript, other open source languages, showing that you can have a full, rich environment without Flash. Because, you know, Adobe recently decided to charge more money for Flash and lock it down and make it harder to use. So kind of uh, the Mozilla Foundation, I guess, is joining Apple in seeing a world without Flash. So I think I'm actually going to uh, maybe sign up for this game and play it and see, because there's just a couple of screenshots, and the screenshots don't look great. I mean, you know, but they're just screenshots. Um, it looks a lot like Legend of Zelda, you know, yeah. back in the old Nintendo days. 
Right. And, you know, and, you know, and again, don't compare it to World of Warcraft because it fails miserably, but compare it to the first MMO games that were out there, like, what was it, Ulta or Ultima or something like yeah, those, those, those quest type games. And, uh, you know, you're, I, I just think, you know, it's one of those, it's not so much, hey, look at what it is. It's, hey, look at this door that's opening. And, uh, so. Anyway, just another story showing that, uh, you know, you can do lots of stuff with open source. You can even do full, rich environments and not just little side projects on it. Yeah, it's illustrating what what pundits have been saying for a long time is that the browser is the OS. Right. You know, and Google certainly believes that with their Chromebook that it, you know, they give you a system where the browser literally is the, the OS and then they find that people aren't happy with it. So they're having to come back and add in like a file system originally didn't even have that. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, I, I do agree that in the future, the distinction between, you know, the network is the computer, that, that old phrase that's been around for a long time, is going to come true. It's not there yet. And, and people tend to say that things are long before they actually are. Uh, but I, I think this shows that they were, we're heading in that direction, that the difference, because in this case, the computer is 15 years older than the computer we have now, but the browser is the computer. So right. when that computer catches up, you know, we're, we're there. And the one thing about this is that it is supposed to look the same on whether you're like a desktop, a laptop, a tablet, or a smartphone. So because you're actually playing on the browser, you get, you know, because like take Google Docs, for instance. If you're on a desktop with a browser window open, you get the full Google Docs experience. If you have like the Android app, They've added functionality, but it's it's not the same. Right, still not there. Desktop. But this is supposed to be, and again, I think I'm going to play with it some over the next couple of weeks. This is supposed to be the same experience regardless of your connection to the Internet. So uh, whether you're on a tablet, uh, smartphone, computer, whatever. And... That's kind of like, isn't that the holy grail of computing is that, you know, whatever device I'm on, it's the same. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. That is the holy grail as far as I'm concerned. It'd be nice to be able to only be at one machine and have everything there. I mean, because, yeah, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I had an iPhone at a previous job, and it was amazing. Let's take all the features of a website, let's strip out half of them, and let's call it an app. And let's watch everybody go goo goo gaga over this app that only does half of what you can do when you're on a computer. So easy now. Don't bring logic and reason into the discussion. Yeah, I know. You can't do that when dealing with Apple products. Well, and I'm sure that it's the same for, you know, the the Android devices as well. Yeah, as David so Pogue just, calls them the Fandroids. The Fandroids <laughs> will will uh, be just as sycophantic as the the iTunes fanboys. Okay, uh, so now on to the actual topic of the show, the post-PC world. And, and this uh, started with an article uh, from the computerworld.com, uh, uh, um, and it's, uh, it's, call, it's called a dispatch from the post-PC revolution. And this was uh, um, linked to us uh, in, the, in a forum post by a listener. Am I right about that, Chris? Let me yep. double-check my yep. notes there. It was brought Kevin, into us by Kevin. Kevin McKibben. Kevin. Yep. Post, posted this and basically asked us to talk about it. And so uh, 
that's what we're doing. And, and um, let's just get some uh, definitions out of the way. The post-PC world, uh, they're not saying we're in it yet, but that we're headed toward it. And so this guy sort of defines what, what, what does post-PC mean and how does Linux fit into it. So uh, we'll just go through. He's got uh, five points. And uh, we'll hit those, or is it more than that? He's got Point a few points. Sorry. He's got a few points, uh, and we'll just go through those one at a time and, and talk about what post-PC means and, and how does Linux fit into the, uh, the post-PC world. Um, and his first um, uh, point is that a post-PC is an appliance. It's not a hobbyist kit. It's an appliance. And, and that's something I've said before, that, that right now people who are using Linux – are the hobbyists. They're the people who in the 80s were building their machines instead of buying them from Dell. Well, you couldn't buy them from Dell, but but uh, you know, even today, most of us will build our machines rather than buy them because we're into that sort of thing. We like to tweak it and 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 play with it. We're the hobbyists. Early on when uh, uh before Henry Ford mass produced cars, everybody who owned a car um was a mechanic by definition. You know, you had to be if you owned a car. Um, early on in, in the computer world, everybody who owned a computer was a programmer because there was yep. no, there was no, uh, passage, uh, package shrink wrapped software that you could go buy. So you, you got this essentially box of silicon and if it was going to do anything, you were going to tell it what to do. So we, we've grown beyond that. And, and the, uh, the writer of this article, let me look up his name real quick. Mike Elgin, uh, states that, uh, that. In the post-PC world, once we've moved past that, and that some people have moved past it and some people still aren't, that the PC will be an appliance. It'll be a toaster. It'll be a television. Televisions today are appliances. Nobody repairs a television anymore. I, I One of my good friends is, has a TV repair shop, and he doesn't repair TVs anymore. He's had to move into like installing satellite dishes and things like that because uh, PC uh, televisions are disposable now. You buy one for a few hundred bucks at Walmart. You keep it a couple years. You throw it out probably just because you want a bigger one, not even because it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So uh, the appliance mentality. Um, and so how does Linux fit into the appliance? Because the Linux user um, tends to rebel against the appliance mentality. Yep. And that's exactly what the thing is. Um, the Linux operating system is for hobbyists. They are the, you know, they are the tinkerers, the geeks. So I have a feeling that it, with this definition, Linux does not fit it. Though, if Mark Shuttleworth has his way about it, Linux will be an appliance. Right. We're definitely moving that way. The, the phrase I've used a thousand times, the tabletification of the OS. We're trying to make things fit in this appliance model. And that's important because the end users of the next decade are going to want that. But the geeks like us have to be able to still crack it open and work on it. And they, you still have to have the hobbyists to support um, the the others that's that's the way i look at it i mean yeah you, you know your grandma goes to uh best buy or walmart or maybe from the dell website and orders a pc in a box or a laptop even and to her it's an appliance but she needs you right she needs her grandson or her niece or her nephew to work on it because the hobbyists are still there to support the appliances yep. yeah but you know you could almost yeah you know, i just could you not not make the point that in what the age we're moving out of, so to speak, that we were forcing things to fit into a PC, you know, uh, things that would have been better suited for an appliance. We just like, oh, there's a PC, make that PC, 
be a, you can make it be a server, you can make it be an internet gateway, you can make it be a router, you can do whatever, just fit it in there. That's um, a very good point. That's a very good point. So, you know, and I mean that, and you know, our, we're like, this is, this is the way we learned it. So of course we don't want it to change, but people who are, you know, middle school or even elementary school who are learning on the tablet, they're going to be, this is the way we learned it. We don't want the eyeglasses. We want the tablet to hold or, you know, whatever the future is. Um, we don't want the implant. We want the tablet. Right. But as, as G Duncan in the chat room points out that, the, the end user will have the appliances, but the there's still going to be a server somewhere that all those appliances connect to. So yep. the server is not going to be an appliance. And so there's still going to be the guys like us. And I think what's going to happen is the techs are going to become sort of a priesthood uh, of these shrouded guys, uh, you know, in, in the back that, uh, that, you know, you have to approach under, you know, well, once a year and bring an offering. Uh, because it's going to become such an elite thing because everybody else will just have an appointment. And that's, isn't that what auto mechanics are now? We yeah. bend over and bare our buttholes to mechanics on a daily basis because we have no choice. Right. And they come in there and say, yeah, your disgruntificator's out, and that's going to cost you $1,500, and we just hand over the credit card and say, whatever. I have no idea what you just said to me. And so that's when we move into the post-PC world, that's what the server guys are going to be. Sweet. So I, can I do the whole monk thing? Instead of being a a priest, I want want to be the monk. (laughs) You know, in the I used to be involved in BattleTech, which was uh, originally a board game, and then it spawned like a role playing game and a bunch of books, and there was even an animated series. But in it, like in this future world, in this future universe where we've colonized planets and technology and the civilization kind of broke down, there was this priesthood who operated the the communication system that enabled you to communicate with the rest of the universe. They were looked upon as priests. So I thought it was an interesting point. Yeah. I didn't do it justice. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I ruined Battletech for someone I know. Okay. So point number two in the uh, article is that uh, uh, the post PC has multi-touch. It's not a keyboard and a mouse driven thing. It's multi-touch. Um, okay. So, I, you know, I, I, I accept that premise to a point. But I still believe that that that's never going to be fast enough and responsive enough and easy enough for the data center guy who just needs to take this stack of paper and put it into the computer to use that. And also, it doesn't work when your hands are this big. <laughs> I uh, my iPhone, I try. I loved like Sudoku, and I always I, when I played it. I played it to see how fast I could finish a puzzle. And my hand, my finger was so big, it takes up like four of the things. And whichever one I hit, you know, I lost 10, 15 seconds of time because I hit the wrong one. So when you've got these little four-inch screen and your your finger is like two inches, it just it doesn't work. And that's, a, you know, a stylist, which if you're an Apple person, you hate the Galaxy whatever the galaxy stylus note notes is, but I like, I don't have one, but I love the concept. I'm like, thank you. You know, I, 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 I can use that and I can use it for speed if that's important to me or accuracy because, you know, my hands are just so much larger (laughs) than the average person. You know, it, uh, as things get smaller, 
the human interface is always the smallest point. We're, things have actually kind of gone backwards and gotten bigger. I remember when cell phones were were so small that it was difficult to type on. I remember the little Bluetooth things that that just sort of almost fit right in the ear. They've actually gotten bigger over the last few years because you you find out that people want that or or the ones that you actually uh, telescoped. They would be really small and then they would telescope out. We we got smaller because we could and now we're getting bigger because we should. And so that there's yeah. I think that's going to happen with multi-touch. We're going to get all crazy with the swiping and the multi-gestures and, and if I swirl left this way, uh, then it does this thing. And then we're going to realize this is palm graffiti and we hated it then. Why are we doing it now? Yeah. Can and like the, the, the other thing I was going to bring up is the voice thing because that's going to be a point in there as well. They're going to want voice activation for everything because then they can have their Star Trek. Right. And who wants their Star Trek, you know? Uh, I, I think I think the the gesturing and voice is a is a bell and whistle that we're hoping right. for that it's going to take off, but it's not going to be what they showed in Minority Report. Voice is yeah. fine when it's one person in a room talking to one computer, yeah. but once you introduce two people and two computers or two people in the same computer, boom, you've blown voice away. It doesn't work anymore. It's like you know. So I asked, "What was that? Was that Tai Chi?" No, I was trying to reboot my computer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's like I don't want to work out to use my computer. <laughs> I want to be lazy and stream some content or, you know, download it to watch later because I can't stream at home. I remember an episode of the Jetsons going way back where George came home one day and, and Jane, Jane asked him how his day was. And he said, oh, Jane, it was terrible. I had to push the button four times today. It was the hardest day. And, uh, you know, that was, that was what, uh, the Hannah brothers, uh, 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 Barbara, Bear brother, whichever one, how they, uh, uh, envisioned the future. And I think that's more realistic than minority report. We're going to have one big button and we're going to push that button to do whatever we need done. Yeah. Okay. And so the next one, uh, it doesn't have file management. All right. I can accept that. And users for the most part, don't care about file management. They just want their stuff to be there. Um, and, um, of course I have on my Android phones, I go in and put eStrong's file explorer so I can get to the file manager because I'm one of those guys. I like that. Um, and, but you know, on the iPad, there is no file management there. There is a very limited storage. And I think, I think he's right on that point that the, 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 the appliance of the future, your stuff will be there. Or won't. I mean, your toaster doesn't have crumb management. It's, it's either there or it's not. And and that's just kind of the way it's going to be. Well, you know, I think that's going to be even good for the the hobbyist people too. You know, it, it's I can understand not having much file management, but I don't think having local storage is what is. It should be more like if file management isn't the right word, I think it should say it doesn't have local storage because everything will be on the cloud. And I think that's a better point than file management. Yeah. Which I don't like cloud. I like to keep my stuff local to me. And, uh, you know, once it leaves your, once it crosses over that device and it leaves your home or your, your business or whatever, any illusion of security or privacy is gone. Well, that's where you just have to trust the monks and the priests to deal with your stuff. Right. Yeah. Or you encrypt. When security, yeah. When security is someone's, policy you know it's one thing to say i have this stuff on my laptop 
and if you want to see what I have, you have to break into my laptop. I have some expectation of security. But when I'm putting something on your server a billion miles away from me or wherever it is, then I, uh, I have no illusion of security because you, you're bored. you could have a great policy that says we will not access your data in any way whatsoever, but that bored intern tech guy who has nothing better to do but go in and look and see what everyone has. And again, it's not that, you know, I'm not planning to blow up something. I just, I'm a private guy. So, I'll so like do you encrypt everything then? Do you, have, do you have your laptop double encrypted with TrueCrypt or something? No, I just monitor how people access it. So, I shouldn't have to do that. My, anyway, I'm yeah. just a private guy. Okay. Uh, and the next one. I don't think we really need to spend any time on. Uh, number four says apps function on an app store model. Um, I think that works to a degree, but I think people are always going to want to sideload. They're going to want to get stuff from somewhere else. But, uh, yeah. you know, I don't really have a big uh, rant about that one way, one way or the other. What about you guys? I kind of like the app store model because then you don't have to worry about disks anymore. As long as it's not you install it once and it's game over and then you can't ever get it back because you always have the chance of having something crash on you. But um, I, I kind of like the App Store model as long as it's implemented so that way you can sideload. It's not just from the App Store only. I mean, I, you know, has a little tinkering smartphone or something, apps are fine, but for my main computing device, I do not like that. But, uh, well, you know, I like the, uh, Ubuntu software center and I like the fact that I type in what I'm looking for and it's there and that's an app store model and right. they were using it long before, um, Apple had an app store and, uh, you know, Fedora had their yum repositories and, and that that's been around for a long time. There's, here's all the stuff that we know works, go get it from here. And I get that. And that makes a lot of sense. But when I buy a printer driver or buy a printer, um, and I need the driver, I don't always want, I can't always trust that it's going to be in the repositories. I need the ability to load it myself. But again, when you take it to a pure appliance model, you're not adding on, you know, you don't, uh, you don't put a new gas tank in your car. You, you just, you deal with what it has. And, and if you want a bigger one, you get a different car. So if you accept that it's truly going to be an appliance, then sideloading isn't necessarily a big deal. I mean, you get, you buy it based on what it can do, um, not necessarily what you can force it to do. Now, you know, there are people who, you know, super modify their cars, but again, that's when you go back to the hobbyist thing. Most people don't. Most people don't even change their own oil. Yeah, I was, that's a, they point out in the chat room that, you know, it makes articles and kind of support easier because you don't have to, tell them how to download the tools you just say install this app then click on this particular function in that app and everyone who has that program has whereas otherwise you know if you install it it's like if you chose the defaults and if you're on windows go here and do this but if you're on apple it's over here so yeah another comment in the chat room is that the the downside of the App Store, both the, the Apple and, uh, to a lesser extent, the Android Play, uh, is that uh, you have a gatekeeper there. Somebody says what can what can be there and what can't. And when you can sideload, you don't have that option. But again, I think when you're looking at things from a purely appliance model, 
um, you have to accept the gatekeeper. That's just, it is what it is. Like when I bought my car, there were four uh, colors I could choose for the interior. Now I can take it and have it reupholstered, but now it's no longer an appliance. So I think yeah. that's just the, the way it's going to be. And I, I recognize that. I don't like it as a tinkerer, but I recognize that that's the model that we're moving toward. If and I could too. set up, yeah, if I could set up like my own gateway kind of thing and I could download these apps and keep them local, where if I wanted to like re just wipe my appliance and start over, I would have them here regardless of what happened in the world. I would like that. That would be kind of cool. But again, from an appliance standpoint, I don't know. Maybe that's how open source fits in the appliance world. You can create your own private, you know, whatever. And you can you can have these apps local. So if something happens, you know, when you lose connection to the Internet, you, you can get back. Yeah, and that's where the, the hobbyist comes in, the the. Uh the, there, were, there will be this entire cottage industry of services around the appliance that, uh, you know, like you can, um, you can modify appliances you have now. You can, you can repair appliances you have now. You can, you know, um, I'm trying to think of an example. I, I've used the car too many times, but, you know, that's a good example because you can take your car and you can repaint it. You know, the factory gives you five choices, but you, there's this whole separate industry of the auto body shop. That, that teaches you how to customize, or doesn't teach you, but they're the people who know how to customize it. So I think there will be that cottage industry of of appliance um, modifications and personalizations. Yeah. For not for a topic we weren't gonna, or for a bullet point we weren't going to talk much about, we definitely <laughs> hammered it. Okay. And and that's really the the rest of the article is two more pages of of supporting those four points. Uh, so unless you guys had a point that you wanted to bring out, I think uh, we're pretty much done with that article. Uh, and, you know, of course, I like what you said up front. It's it's not that there comes a point in time where there's no longer any PCs and everything's appliances. You know, it's just like even today when the command line is dead, you still use the command line all the time. So, um, you know, and, you know, well, I mean, you know, the command line is dead. Long live the command line. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you, well, cause in, and that was part of what he talked about is how, you know, first there was like the, the command line and then you had the graphical user face within the command line. Then you had the command line within the graphical interface and then there's just the GUI and, and, you know, so it's kind of PC and then tablet, but they're still going to have both for a while. So, all right, and since you've brought us into it so nicely, Chris, what is our command line tip of the week? In the old SSH world. All right, start uh, all over again. You were breaking up. Okay. Like I said, this is a step up for SSH. Um, I figured since we have the GUI kid back with us, I would bring something along the lines for his GUI-ness. Um, this is a way to set up SSH on your server or wherever your SSH server is, so you can actually forward your GUI interface to your Windows box or some other um, interface wherever you are. Um, for this instance, I'm just going to do the cliff notes because I'm going to write up something a little more detailed for the forums, but what it basically is, when you set up this system, you can bring 
your GUI applications from that server to you locally with a GUI interface. So if like, for example, um, this weekend I needed to do some work at on my um, Linux server at the school, but they don't allow command line interfaces for some of them. So I actually had to pull either, you know, remote desktop to the server or doing something like um, what I'm going to talk about here, where I actually pulled the GUI interface to me locally through SSH. Yeah, I've done that before. You can run a whole desktop, you know, using VNC over SSH. I've done that lots of times. Well, this isn't VNC, though. This is right. just the app. Right. So, like, if you needed the inter the uh, you, it's kind of it's one of those things where a VPN kind of beats this thing up because VPNs perform a little bit better. But it's nice if you just need to pull a single occurrence over of a GUI. Um, you, the main thing you need for Windows is you need to install Xming, so you have an X11 server on your Windows box, and then something called Putty. Which, if you're a command line guy, you know what putty is. It's the best thing since sliced bread. <laughs> Even I agree with that. So putty's good. Putty is the best thing for for SSH. But yeah, it's pretty simple that you just install Xming, tell Putty that you have a, an X server locally, and you want to forward X, and that's it. You just launch the application with the whatever command it needs to launch, and you now have a local instance of that remote server. All right. And, Seth, what is our end-user tip of the week? Well, I figure since more and more people are getting e-reading devices, whether they be Nook or Kindles or even just uh, an app for maybe uh, an end your iPhone, what are some places you can get some free books if you don't want to go out and purchase a bunch of them? So um, I have a, first of all, the Gutenberg Project is probably my favorite place to go and look for, um, and these are books that are, you know, a lot of them are kind of old and they've been out there for a while, and so the royalties and all that have passed and they're just considered, was it public domain? Right. Um, yep. And makeuseof.com has a place which like the best sites to go to get free books and they mention several places so we'll put that link in the show notes um, there's ebook search engines uh, scribid.com uh, like I say pro they mentioned Project Gutenberg and then there's like daily list you can go to find stuff at as well so if you have an e-reader and you're thinking you know now I've got to buy all of these old classic books I love you might not have to if they're older books, they might be public domain and you can get them for free or, you know, you can go find short stories or whatever that have been released free. Uh, and there's a whole lot of stuff out there that you don't have to pay for um, legally, not just, right. you know, and that's what I'm pointing out, the legal way to get free books. Yeah. When I first got my palm back in the PDA days, I uh, spent a lot of time on Gutenberg and other sites like that. I'm trying to remember what some of those were. And if I, if I can come up with them, I'll add them to the show notes. Uh, where you could get lots of stuff like that. And I loaded my PDA with, with dozens of books and didn't read any of them and then realized I don't really read. It was just a nice idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> but if you're a reader, um, it's a good way to go. Like I had the, just because I wanted it, just because I thought it was cool, I downloaded the, the complete works of William Shakespeare. And, and when you can download that and put it in your pocket, 
that's pretty darn cool. Am I going to read it? No, but it's cool. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, thanks for the, for the good show guys. That was interesting. I, I think I enjoyed it anyway, and I hope our listeners did too. Um, Here's a way you can let us know if you liked it or if you didn't. You can contact us over at elementop.com. That's where uh, that's kind of where we live. We have the forums there, the Everyday Linux forum. There's a contact uh, button right up at the top, or there's a, even a voicemail. Leave us a voicemail option on the side. You can do what Aaron did uh, and leave us a voicemail. And as I showed tonight, I will play it. Uh, you can also uh, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook. Uh, we don't do a whole lot of interacting there, but it's a good place where you can find out when we're doing a live show or or what's going on there. A, a quick, easy way to uh, to get notifications there. We don't spam you with a lot of different stuff. I, I keep all my bacon rants on my personal feed, so you can follow that if you want that, but I don't do it on the Element Opie feed. Um, or you uh, can always give leave us a voicemail. Call us at 559 559- I am Opie. But really, I, I want to direct you to the website, elementopie.com and the forums. That's where the community lives, and that's where you can not only feedback with us, but other listeners as well. So, And like I like I said earlier, that's where my little write-up on how to do X11 forwarding is going to be is in the forums. Right. So if you want that in-depth, you have to go there to get it. And if you're an email guy, you can email us at edl for Everyday Linux at elementop.com, and that comes to all four of us, and we all see it. All right, guys, thanks for being with us. And, uh, Chris, you have any final words before we say goodnight? Bacon. Bacon. Seth, how about you? <laughs> bacon, bacon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well. <laughs> and now I'm going to go eat some. <laughs> now that now that we have uh, invoked the name of the bacon, there's bacon is the Chuck Norris of, of topics. There's nothing else that can be said. So I'm going to say that ends this episode of Everyday Linux. Good night, everybody. Good night, everyone. See you again.